Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. <clears throat> Sorry, I was having microphone problems. Um, good to see you all this morning. Do me a favor. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy. I love that song, man. There is some great truths in that song. Um, and so we're in the middle of our series called Authentic. And, uh, and so if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 5. We're going to park there this morning and get your hand out. You can follow along. It's a great way to prepare for your, um, for your small group. And I'm going to say something to you guys that I won't say to the other services, okay? So uh, first of all, I want to thank you guys for making the 815 service the service you come to. We have been having, uh, we've been really full at the 945 and even the 1115 service. So those of you who have bought in to the vision of, hey, I want to free up some seats and parking for others that are coming to Coastal, and so I'm going to choose to come to the 815 service. Thank you very, very much. I know it's early, and uh, man, I really, really appreciate those of you that have made this part of your vision in Coastal. So thank you. Good morning. I know it's a little harder to wake up at 815, right? I thought Josh, when he was making announcements, I feel like we were just getting him out of bed, you know, like, hey, get up and get going. But uh, uh, yeah, so we're going to look at 1 Timothy this morning, chapter 1, verse 15, and, and uh, my kids growing up, we had this toy uh, that was called Connects, and with it, I, I hope to have this picture. I'm a little nervous about this picture. Okay, they told me they were going to superimpose my face over this picture, so I was nervous. Um, that was just, uh, just a techie joke, okay? Um, so, but uh, this, with this, this toy called Connects, my kids used to build this roller coaster, and uh, it's called the Screaming Serpent, and, uh, and my son used to do it, and it would take him literally days to build this roller coaster. It has so many parts, and this, I actually got this out of the box this week, this is the instruction manual to the Screaming Serpent, all right? It's got 138 pages, okay, and it's got over 100 steps in order to build that. I was, I was like, whoever built this toy is probably like a Virginia Tech grad, right? I mean, you got to be brilliant to figure this thing out. And uh, my son would, would build this. He built this on multiple occasions. Uh, but the key to building the Screaming Serpent is starting at step one, right? I mean, it's one little green piece with one little gray piece, and then just going step by step through the instruction manual. And it, it's, I, I was always intimidated by the picture because I'm like, man, that looks impossible to build. But if you build with step one in mind and you go to step two, then it is, it is actually a, you're able to accomplish putting together the roller coaster, the screaming serpent, okay? And so in a similar way, we've been, we've been doing a series called Authentic, you know, and we talked about two weeks ago, and the series is kind of building on itself. In the next couple of weeks, it's going to get a little more practical, like what's this look like in our community of faith to be authentic, all right? But it started with the idea that, that originally God designed for humanity to be authentic with him and with one another, but sin entered the world. First, Adam disobeyed God, brokenness. We now live in this broken world that God, Christ, uh, God in Christ is in the process of restoring and redeeming and buying back, if you will. Okay, and we looked at that last week, that the second Adam is Jesus Christ, and he is our victor over the brokenness. Now, this morning, I want to look at, at a verse that as I, was, uh, as I was processing this idea of being authentic, this verse kind of stuck out to me as, wow, like I would like to be authentic. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been advertising, I want to hold this up, it's kind of a by the way. Okay, I, I didn't mention it last week. I want to mention it this week. Is is uh, you know as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, we we become more and more authentic as 
God originally designed the human race. And so this is a book called Spiritual Disciplines or Spiritual Disciplines for the Life of the Christian or the Christian Life. And, and uh, the reason I'm giving you this is the more we discipline ourselves to be more like Christ, the more authentic we are as God originally designed us and made us. And so these are for sale. We're selling to you at our cost back at the Connect Center. You can get it online. Really would encourage you to read that book. It's a phenomenal book on how to grow to be more like Christ. But, but God in his grace sent his son, the second Adam, to restore all that was broken, okay? And so uh, this past summer, I was, um, I was uh, took some study leave, and I was preparing some sermons, and next year, I'm going to be taking us through the book of 1 Timothy, and it's a, a, a letter that Paul wrote to a young pastor that's been very dear to my heart in all my years of pastoring, and I decided to take us through it as a church, and, and I, as I was really meditating on this letter that Paul wrote, I stumbled across 1 Timothy, and I knew I was getting ready to do this series called Authentic, and as I read this verse, I'm like, that just kind of sticks out to me. When I hear of an authentic person, this is the kind of person that I want to be, That, and this is the kind of verse that sounds like they are authentic. So check this out, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. Paul says, the purpose of my instruction. Now, by the way, whenever I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to take us as a church through the book of the Bible, I'm always looking for that verse that says, this is kind of the purpose. This is, this is why I'm writing this, because to me, that's the central focus. And, and so Paul says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers, I want you to circle the word believers, okay, that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. When I read that, I'm like, that, that kind of just smells like authentic, right? Like, I remember I said the word authentic is kind of hard to define. It's like defining love or defining beauty. It's not so easy always to put words around it. You know it when you see it. When I read this verse, I'm like, that's authentic to me. That's a person whose, whose heart is pure, whose conscience is pure. They have a genuine faith. And I read that, I'm like, oh, man, that smells like authentic. The key to this verse, though, is not the back end. See, we, we read this, we're like, man, I want to go out here. I want to have clear conscience. I want to have a pure heart. I want to love others. I want to have genuine faith. The key to this verse is actually the very first part of it where Paul says, here's who I'm writing to. I am writing to believers. That's the beginning part of being an authentic person. And so I got to stop here for a moment and park, and this is where we're going to spend probably half this sermon here this morning, because it's easy to skip over this. A person who, who is a believer is a person whose heart and life has trusted the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to be their Lord and Savior. And without that, the back end of this verse is, will be you just trying to religiously do something. Rather than a heart that's been radically changed and that the overflow of a heart of worship is a person who's authentic. So let's, let's make sure you understand the gospel message, all right? So, you know, if we're going to be a believer, you've you got to understand the message of the gospel. And by the way, the word gospel means what, church? What's it mean? Good, it means good news. In fact, we use that term. It's a term that's actually in our current Christian culture has become really popular. You know, a lot of, a lot of people are being gospel-centered. And, and I think you got to understand, like, well, what in the world does that mean? And so if we're going to understand what the good news is, first thing we got to understand is the character of our God, the character of who our God is. In fact, the good news isn't very good until you understand the bad news. See, the bad news for humanity is actually the character of God. God is holy. That means he's without sin. I don't, know, I don't know if you were singing that last song as a prayer, but like, as I was singing it, I was like, God, check my heart and check my attitude 
in your purity. Like, that's an intimidating line to sing. Is it like, like, do I really want God to probe my heart and my thoughts and my attitudes? I mean, 24 hours a day, like, I know how stinky my attitude can get. I know how much Sean can be about Sean, right? I know how much, even as a pastor and in the ministry, like, how much I think it all revolves around me. I know in my marriage how much I want it all to revolve around me. I know in my parenting how much I want the kids to, like, all revolve around me. I mean, as I'm singing, I'm like, do I really want the God, the holy, perfect God of the universe tugging and prodding around Sean's heart and his attitude and his thoughts. Like, that's intimidating to me. In fact, it's a little bit overwhelming. God is holy. He's without sin. He consumes sin in his character. And so as sinners, if we're born in the first Adam in brokenness and sin, like, we can't stand in the presence of a holy God. The character of God should intimidate us make our knees tremble, and really, if God was completely just without the person working for Christ, he would consume us as sinners. Fortunately, we worship a God that's also a God of grace. Not only is God holy, but God is just. Wait, the character of God, God's a just God. You know, a lot of times I think as followers of Christ, if you're here this morning, I'm assuming many of you or most of you are followers of Christ. That's why you got up at 815 to gather and worship him. But, but you know, God doesn't simply forgive sin. I think we think that because, you know, grace and forgiveness is come so easily to us. It's free to us. But, you know, God didn't just forgive sin. I want you to picture here in our community, if we had a local judge, that he was tenderhearted and he was kind. And every time a criminal came before his bench, that judge just said, ah, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You're free to go. And thieves and pedophiles and murderers. And rape, they just went, free. you're free to go. Don't worry about it. How would you feel about that? Like you'd be like, well, wait a minute. That's, that's not just. We, even in our fallen state, we have a sense of justice. And God, he doesn't simply forgive our sins. Rather, he demands payment for our sins. And when we, as sinners, stand in his presence of his holy character, man, we, we have a huge problem in the in the presence of a holy and just God, which leads to my second point about understanding the gospel. You got to understand the condition of man, which I think I've, you know, I've already painted the picture, right? We've violated God's holiness. We're born into sin and disobedience. Every part of our being, every part of our inclination is to rebel from God. We don't naturally submit to God's will or God's ways. We don't submit to the authority of God's word. We, don't, we get nervous if the preacher talks too long about the word submission or authority. We don't like to hear any of it. Why? Because our nature is, is to not submit. We want to submit to us and me and me alone. And we live in a culture that feeds that. And the Bible is very clear. We're, we're treasonous to our king. And, and what we really deserve is to be condemned and consumed in the presence of God. And so the third thing, if we're going to understand the gospel, is God's love mercy, and this, is, this, this, this sentence was thought out intentionally, all right, is God's love, mercy, and grace shown to us in the person and work of Christ. I want you to understand that. The love, mercy, and grace to, God, to us is found in the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. 
okay? So, so if your standing before God is going to be under his grace, mercy, and love, it is going to be found, you are going to be found believing in the lordship or in the person and work of God's son, Jesus Christ. There's only good news for you found in the belief in the person and work of God's son, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we stand condemned. We stand under the wrath, the holy, just wrath of God. It is only in the person and work. That is the gospel. That God, does God love us? Yes, he loves us in Christ. Is he merciful to us? Yes, he's merciful to us in Christ. Is he gracious to us? Yes, he's gracious to us in Christ. We have to bow and knee to the lordship of Christ. So let's take a moment talk about the person and work of Christ. First, the person of Christ. If you're going to understand the gospel, you do have to understand who Jesus is. The big theological word is the word Incarnation. Right? We're going to celebrate that at Christmas time, right? That Jesus Christ is 100% God and he's 100% man. I think he got 80 shopping days till Christmas. Can you believe that? We're celebrating that in a couple months. What we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation of Christ. God became flesh and lived among us. Is that incredible? It's incredible. It's the person of Christ. He, He is the one who was perfect, sinless. He lived a life that we should have lived in Adam, but didn't. He kept every law of God, every moment of his existence. He thought about God as Father and others as more important than himself. He never had an attitude or a thought that strayed away from the righteousness of God. Every thought, heartbeat, and action was in line with the character of his heavenly Father in perfect righteousness. He lived a perfect life because he was sinless. He was God in flesh. He he lived a perfect life. He was tempted, the scriptures tell us, in all the ways we're tempted, but without sin. That's the person of Christ. And then there's the work of Christ. The work of Christ, that he, he lived this sinless life, and that sinless life is the righteousness of Christ is credited to you and I by grace through faith. The, by the grace of God and, the, and faith in Christ, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a spiritual, think of like a financial transaction, but it's a spiritual transaction where the righteousness of Christ is credited to you through no effort or work of your own, but by grace alone, through faith alone. He lived the perfect life. He, he, he died a death. And, and by the way, the, the cruci- crucifixion is a horrifying, agonizing way to die. And, and, and that was purposeful, I believe, in, in, the, in the plan of God, our Heavenly Father, because it, the way he died needed an appropriate punishment for judgment and justice for sin to be paid for. And so the work of Christ, he, he died a substitutionary death, a death that you deserve, a death that I deserve. He, he paid the penalty. When he hung on the cross, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he, what's going on there? He's taking the punishment of sin so that the justice, the judgment, and the wrath of God was poured out on his perfect son, the work of Christ. And then he was laid to rest in a grave, and he promised, hey, three days, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, and he's, he's the one man that the grave couldn't hold. The grave did not hold, hold our Savior. I keep referring to Pastor Andrew's sermon a month ago, which is just, it's just so important. The resurrection is kind of the stake in the ground, okay? In a minute, we're going to talk about genuine faith, okay? But, we, like, we believe in, in a historical fact that the grave couldn't hold our Savior, 
And he came back. And so he, because he overcome, I always say this, this is my little point I've always made. I make it at funerals sometimes. I make it from the sermon. I say, if you step out of your grave, I'm going to believe in what you say, right? You get to say whatever you want. I, I got, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. If you step out of your own gravesite. And so because he stepped out of his own gravesite, he's, he's, he, he's able to say, listen, I'm good for all the promises that I'm making. All the promises about God are true. All the promises of the future are true. And I'm coming again. The, the, the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of a, an assured victory when Christ will return and he will finalize what he started at the work on the cross, the complete victory over all the enemies of God. It's the person and work of Christ. And the personal work of Christ in him, we see the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. And so Paul talks about, you want to be an authentic person? I'm writing to believers. And believers have an understanding of the gospel. It's not just an, under, an intellectual understanding of the gospel. There is, and this is the step for you and I to understand the gospel at very deep levels, is to repent and believe. Here's our response to the message of the gospel, is to repent and believe. We need to repent of our sin. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It's, an, it's actually an archery term, okay? And, and uh, I don't know how many of y'all have ever shot a bow and arrow. I am. Um, I'm a horrible shot, okay? So this, so every time I shoot a bow and arrow, I'm like, that's sin. You know, I missed the mark again, you know? And, and, and it's literally an archery term, but it means to miss the mark of God's righteousness and God's holiness, Okay? And God defines for us sin. And one of the challenges we face in our culture is like we live in a culture that's trying to redefine sin for us. We don't want to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. And so we're redefining sin, right? So, so if you're trapped in a sin right now, you're stuck with, between two wrestles. You're either going to agree with God that your disobedience is sin, it's missing the mark of God's holiness, or you're going to try to redefine it, right? I mean, we're, we're in a culture that's trying to redefine relationships, we're in a culture that, you know, if you're stuck in, a, in having an affair, you're going to try to redefine righteousness. If you're clicking a button and doing pornography, you're, like, you're going to try to redefine that. If you're stealing from the U.S. government when you report your taxes, you're, like, you're going to try to redefine righteousness and holiness. And the list goes on like, we want to redefine sin. We don't, we don't want to submit to the authority of God and, and say God has defined righteousness for us. And so we try to redefine sin. So if we're going to if we're going to understand the gospel at deep heart level, uh, in our heart and in our mind, and really grapple with, like the first thing is to understand, hey, God has the right to define righteousness, and what he calls sin is sin, and so I need to repent of my sin. Now, sin, repentance literally means a 180-degree turn, all right? And the Bible talks about two kinds of stars. In fact, as I'm kind of listing some sins, maybe you're stuck in some of those sins, and, and you're sitting here, and you're feeling guilty about it, right? And the Bible says there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow where we just leave sad, and there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Man, God, I am so sorry about this that I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to pursue righteousness as you've defined it. I'm going to pursue, I'm going to pr pursue your son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. I'm going to repent of sins, and I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe 
He is who he says he is. I'm going to bow a knee to his lordship. That means he has the authority to rule over my life. I'm going to receive his righteousness that is given to me by grace through faith. So no longer am I being religious and pursuing righteousness to try to be good, but rather because my heart has been consumed by the gospel of Christ, I'm going to live in obedience as a reflection of worship to my God and his character. And it's an inside-out thing that understands the goodness and the grace. And this is the gospel message. And so Paul here says, listen, I'm, I'm writing to believers. And the New Testament goes on to give us a, a truth that's unbelievable. Ready? That a believer then, once you believe in the gospel of Christ, gets a deposit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. A believer gets a deposit of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in our lives, which, which renews our hearts and does a supernatural work. And by the way, this is, this is like if you're married to a believer, like this is really good news. You want to know why this is good news? Like you ain't got to run around and change your spouse all the time, right? I need to change, I need to change her. I need to change him. I just need to tell him how he needs to change, right? Here's the good news. The Holy Spirit lives in him. You, you, you know what you better serve doing? Ready for this? Praying for him. Because the Holy Spirit is in their heart and life, molding them and shaping them to be more in the image of Christ. And my fear for you, if you begin to pray for your spouse, guess what the Holy Spirit's going to do to your heart? Uh-oh. Change you too, right? And so, so a person is a follower of Christ. And we talked about this back in the summer when we went through John chapter 16. We talked about the role of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and reminds of coming judgment and reminds us of the righteousness of, of God's righteousness and guides us in what's true and gives us a new heart. And so Paul says, listen, my purpose in writing this is for believers. And a believer is one who understands the gospel and is about a need to the lordship of Christ and has a deposit of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in their heart and life. And so, you know, and so because of that, the Holy Spirit is renewing our hearts and making us more like Christ and making us more authentic. And so all the back end of this verse is written to a person who understands the gospel and has the Holy Spirit in their heart and life. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, the back end, if you just go to the back end of this, we, we run the risk of running around our culture like we hear now, like you hear this all the time on TV, like, hey, just trust your heart. Just trust your heart. Do what your heart's telling you. know, I've seen a lot of people, believers and unbelievers, trust their heart into shipwreck because they're pursuing sin and they're pursuing disobedience and they're trusting their heart without any, without any community speaking wisdom into their life. Jeremiah chapter 17, the prophet Jeremiah says this about the human heart. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. That's the human heart left to itself. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Christ, and the word of God, and community of faith, the human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And we have to be really careful trusting our heart, okay? So the back end of this, though, that the background is a believer gets a new heart renewed and regenerated by the gospel and by the whole work of the Holy Spirit. And so in that context, okay, check this out, 1 Timothy 1.5. The purpose of my instruction, Paul says, is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Man, I love that. Doesn't that sound like an authentic person? 
I love that verse. So let's, let's unpack this real quick, okay, and then we'll wrap this up here this morning. From the heart of a believer is a person who's filled with love. From the heart of the believer is a, is a person who's filled with love. Love for God and love for others. Authenticity of, of the heart is a, is a heart that beats for worship with God, for God and a, a heart that beats for loving others. In fact, in the coming weeks, it's kind of where we're going to go with this. We're going to talk about authentic, authenticity and community, okay? But Romans 7, let me just give you a couple of verses that Paul talks to. He's talking to churches and people that are believers. He talks about what love should look like. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes this to the church of Rome. He says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Like, that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, have you ever put yourself out there and emptied yourself in another person's life and they've kind of walked all over you? They forget that. Like, probably have, right, if you've been doing this for a long time. But Paul says, don't just pretend. I saw a commercial yesterday. Um, I was watching some college football, and this commercial came on where there's family uh, and, and their neighbors, and they watch their new neighbor, they watch their neighbors pull up in a brand new car, right? And they're so envious, like they get binoculars, and they're looking at it, right? And they're kind of trying to figure out how their neighbor was able to afford this new car. And so the, the neighbor looks at his wife, and he says, I, I guess they got a raise. And they both look at each other, and he goes, yeah, good for them. Right? It was this cynical, inauthentic, like, yeah, that's great. They got a raise. Right? And we're kind of wired up that way, right? But that's not real love. Real love is when we rejoice with people that are rejoicing, and we're hurting with people that are hurting. We have a genuine, heartfelt affection towards other people. And, and actually, in the family of faith, as believers, man, there needs to be a tenderness towards one another. When someone else is doing better than you, you kind of go, man, good for them. Man, way to go. God's doing something. That's great. I really rejoice with them. That's not always, sometimes it's, it's easier to hurt with someone that's hurting than it is to really rejoice for someone that's doing better than you, isn't it? Paul says, man, don't just pretend, really love them. Galatians 5.13, I'm actually going to preach on this in, in two weeks. It says, uh, for you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to do what, church? Serve one another, right? Serve one another in love. By the way, if you, if you have a ministry that you do around here at Coastal and you're weary, you know, there's a place for getting refreshed. That's important. God created Sabbath for the man, so there's a place for rest. But I'm going to tell you something. If you, if you just jump, drop out of ministry and don't ever go back in, the, the body of Christ is worse off for it. Because you just serve others. You have a gift that you bring to the table to serve others in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul goes, says this to the church of Ephesus. He says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. In other words, it all comes back to the gospel. If, if you're not tenderhearted and forgiving to others, the gospel hasn't sunk very deeply into your own heart. You haven't figured out how much you've been forgiven. How dare you withhold forgiveness from others when the holy, just God of the universe forgave you in Christ? Incredible, right? The gospel's got to sink in our hearts so we love others. Paul says that, that's an authentic person. Second thing, we love from a pure heart, Paul says. We love from a pure heart. A pure heart is one that pursues righteousness. A pure heart is a heart that beats for the things of God. A pure heart is a heart that's captivated by the word of God. A pure heart is a heart that's made new by the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. A pure heart is a gift from God. A pure heart loves the accountability of believers and mutually submits to others 
so they make wise decisions, not foolish decisions, running off on their own, or worse yet, running into sin. Uh, there's a great little story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. King David, who is actually, uh, in the scriptures refers to him as a man after God's own heart. King David. But, you know, King David still wrestled with his flesh. He still sinned, right? And there's a great story in 2 Samuel 11 where you can see the digression of a person whose life has become undisciplined and they pursue the flesh instead of the things of the spirit. And so in 2 Samuel 11, it says there was a time where the kings went out for war, but David decided to stay home. And one day, while his commanders are out at war, where he should have been, he's at home enjoying the fruits of his labor. He gets up. It says after he got up from his midday nap, okay, he gets up and he looks out, and there's a beautiful woman taking a bath. And instead of, like Job, making a covenant with his eyes and not taking a double take, he decides to continue to stare. And then things begin to brew in his heart and mind. And he's got the authority to do it. So he says this is on some of his servants. He goes, bring that woman to me. And he has an affair with this woman named Sheba. Later, about a month later, she, called, she sends him a word. Hey, by the way, I want to let you know I'm pregnant. And so David, a man after God's own heart, realizes it's sin. He confesses his sin. He repents of his sin and moves on at that point, right? No, that's not what he does. He goes, oh boy. So you see, he started this digression, right? And by the way, let me come back to this book. This is why a book on spiritual disciplines is so important. We have to, this, we have to discipline our lives in order to grow to be more and more righteous in the righteousness of Christ, okay? This is not go be good and do good. This is to be, is to be molded more and more into the image of Christ because sin is crouching at the door to devour us if we're not careful, Okay? And so David gets word that she's pregnant, and so he goes, I got an idea. I'll bring her husband home. I'll let him go home and sleep with her. He's out on the front lines fighting the war. I'll let him sleep with her, and he'll think he got her pregnant, but he's actually a man whose heart is beating with righteousness. He goes, how dare me go home and sleep with my wife when all my buddies are out sleeping in a tent at battle, so he sleeps at the king's door. Now David's really got a problem. At this point, he goes, man, I'm really sinning. I better repent and get right with Christ. Isn't that what he does? No, no, that's not what he does. You know what he does next? He goes, I know. I'll get Uriah drunk. And then send him home. And the story says even in his drunkenness, he wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife. And so then David goes, I know what I'll do. I'll send him to the front line. We'll attack the city, and I'll tell everybody but him to retreat and gets him killed. And all this time, David doesn't repent until a little prophet, Nathan, comes. And I'll let you read the story on your own. It's a great little story about how Nathan approaches the king, and the king repents, right? And at that point, he's gripped with his sin, and he repents. And Psalm 51 is, is a great psalm. If you're here this morning, you're tangled in a sin, man. I would really encourage you to read, to read Psalm 51 about what the heart of a repentant person looks like. And in Psalm 51, David is repentant, and he says this in Psalm 51, 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a loyal spirit within me. Man, a pure heart is a gift of God. Like, like we can't even walk out of here and like try to be pure in heart. Like we, be, we better depend on the gospel of Christ. Every day, God, search my heart. And so here's the good news. Like we could sing that song, search my heart and check my attitudes in Christ. Because I know I'm forgiven. I've got the grace, but I, I have so much grace. I can continue to say, God, hey, continue to probe things because I want to be more and more like Christ. I, tr I understand I'm forgiven the doctrine of justification. I also understand the doctrine of sanctification. God, you can keep probing my heart. I'm not fearful. I want to be more like Jesus. And if there's areas in there that need your attention, give it to my heart so that I can become more like Christ. A pure heart is a gift from God. Third thing Paul says about an authentic person is they, they love from a clear conscience. I love that. I love that. 
The idea of a conscience is moral sensitivity. In fact, Titus chapter 1 tells us that it's possible for a conscience to be corrupted. But in general, the conscience is a God-given sensitivity to right and wrong. You couple that with the Word of God and community of faith and the Holy Spirit. Man, it's a great tool to be authentic. And the Apostle Paul says many, many times throughout his ministry in the New Testament, man, I served God with a clear conscience. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you're habitual sin, I'm going to tell you something about your conscience. It, it won't leave you alone, and that's a good thing, right? You ever been stuck in a sin? In fact, it's a terrifying thing if your conscience leaves you alone. That's a corrupted conscience, Titus 1. Man, if, you're t- if your conscience is bugging you, it, man, it, and when you're caught in a sin, man, it'll keep you up at night, and it'll affect your heart and your joy and your worship, everything. Psalm 32 The psalmist writes this, he says, man, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. If you're a believer and you're stuck in a habitual, unrepentant sin, and if you're silently hiding in sin for fear that someone will find out, I'm going to tell you something, it will zap your strength physically and spiritually. In fact, I'm a, I'm a believer that some people suffer physically because there's unrepentant sin in their heart. So I think Psalm 32 tells us that. Man, my, my physically, man I'm, I, man, I'm just wasting away. Why? Because there's sin, and I know it, and my conscience is telling me, and we refuse to repent. And so I've got to be inauthentic instead of authentic. And then every time you, you think you're growing spiritually, you're ready to step into ministry, man, the enemy has a foothold in places in your heart and mind. You, you'll never be a... You know, fill in the blank because of your, and in your mind comes, you know, the thing you did or the stuff you stole or what you thought. And, and, and by the way, one of the reasons we're big believers in small group, we believe it's a, it's a great breeding ground for honest relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you know that James chapter 5, I love James 5, we always love James 5, a lot of people quote James 5.16 because it talks about the healing of God, but did you know the beginning of James chapter 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. See, a lot of us, we run through life and we're quick to confess sins to God, and we say it over and over again, hey God, hey God, hey God, hey God, hey God. But there's a great power to finding a trusted brother, and, I'm, I'm, and if you're a man, you need to get, like when you're confessing, it needs to be with another man. If you're a woman, it needs to be with another spiritually mature woman. But there's a great power to getting with somebody else and say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling with pornography. That's a... I'm not, okay. <laughs> I get stained, I could get clipped, you know, there's that camera, it's online, okay. But, but if that's where you are, like there's a great power to getting with another brother in Christ and go, hey, I'm struggling with pornography. It's great power, you know, woman to woman going, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm harboring some hatred in my heart towards another sister in Christ. And, and so that small group, we're hoping the small group ministry, like you don't want to blurt that out in front of the whole small group, but hope that there's a relationship there that develops. And you say, hey, can we grab coffee and go out one-on-one? I got, I got, there's great power in confessing to one another, Right? So that there's some accountability there. So that there's somebody to go, hey, how's that going? You, you know, you walking in righteousness? You in purity and holiness? Man, in a conscience that's free and clear, man, that's a great way to live, man. It's authentic before God. Finally, Paul says, we love from a genuine faith. We love from a genuine faith. What's faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 defines faith. Faith is a confidence. <clears throat> 
that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things we cannot see. And I mentioned this earlier in the sermon. Like we don't, as Christians, we don't have faith in faith. It's not a mindless thing, right? It's not check your brain at the door and follow God. Okay, a lot of people think that, but actually, what we have is, and this is why Pastor Andrew's sermon a month ago was so important. Like, what we have faith is in an actual historical event the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in fact, the early apostles even wrote to us, like, if this didn't happen, don't do this thing called Christianity. It's how sure they were of the resurrection. And, and uh, I did, uh, last year, I did a whole sermon on this idea of, of how many eyewitnesses there were to the resurrection of Christ. And, and the authors of the New Testament even dare you as they're writing these letters, like, hey, go talk to these people. He appeared to over 500 people, go talk to them. All right, the resurrection of Christ. We have faith in the person and work of Christ. And therefore, we, we can believe his promises. Therefore, we can trust that because he overcame the grave, we can trust that his promises to the fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming to earth, that's going to happen. He's good for the finished work of his promises. And so we can take his promises and the character of God at face value, and we can lean in to the promises of God, and we can live by faith. And so we, we love from a genuine trust in the promises of God, dying to self and living for others, generous living, trusting God sees and rewards those who takes his promises seriously. I read a story this week. It's kind of an old preacher story, but I still kind of like it. It's a story is of, a, <clears throat> of a guy who was, um, who was wandering in the dead. He got lost in the desert. And he ran out of water, and he thought he was going to die. And he's walking through the desert. He's praying for some water. And finally, up in the distance, as he's about parched and about to die, he sees a shack. And so he heads towards that shack, and he gets to that shack. And um, right out in front of the shack is one of these old well wa- wells of water with an old hand pump, right? And sitting at the base of this pump is a, is a little jug of water with a note. And the note says, Take this jug of water, pour it down the shaft or the handle of the well to help prime the pump. And if you do that, you'll get all the water you need. Well, this guy, he's, he's parched. He's about to die. And he says, man, I have a couple choices. I can drink this jug of water and probably have enough to survive for a little bit longer. Or I can trust that note. And I can take that life-saving water and pour it down that pump and prime that pump and give all the water I need. So he thought about it for a while, and he finally decided to trust that note. And he took that jug of water, and he poured it down that pump, man. And he began to prime that pump with that water that lubricated that pump shaft. And eventually, all the water he could ever want came out of that pump. He had enough to take a shower. He had enough to fill all his containers. And then when he was done, he refilled that jug, and he put that note next to the thing. He said, Use this water to prime the pump. You'll have all the water you need. And under that note, he wrote, believe me, it works. Right? That's a life of faith. I mean, it does take a little journey of faith to love others to the point of self-sacrifice. I mean, like, you really have to believe that God sees when no one else does. If you're really going to give of yourself to your heart, really love people, like Paul commands us, that's, that's a life of faith. It really is a life of faith to pursue sexual purity in a dating relationship when everybody else in the world is doing what they want. Everybody else is doing it opposite. Like, it really does take a life of faith to say, you know what, God is defined right and wrong. I believe in the resurrection of Christ. That affirms it for me. And I believe that that's building, that I will find greater joy when I do it the way God has instructed me to build my life. 
it really does take a life of faith if, if you say, you know what, I'm, go- I'm going to give a tenth of my, I'm going to tithe to my local church, trusting that God is going to provide for me financially. Like that, that really does take a life of faith. That's a genuine faith in the things of God. And church, it's only a heart that is captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, submitted to him, submitted to his word. It is only that heart that will become a person that is made authentic by the Spirit of God. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, man, when I read 1 Timothy, I, verse 5, I, I want to be that person. I want to be a person that knows you and pursues you with genuine faith, a heart of love, a clear conscience, a heart of purity, God. And so God, as as a follower of Christ, I thank you that I'm free, I'm righteous, I'm declared righteous, the righteousness of Christ is granted to me, and I'm so free that I can, it's like I continue to probe my heart and mold me more and more into the image of Christ. That's my heartbeat, that's my desire my life would be an opportunity to worship Christ and honor God in all things. God, I pray that you would make us a people, your church, Coastal Community Church, you would make us authentic. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, this is our offering time. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're not after your money. Thank you for being here. This is one of the ways we worship God at Coastal Community Church. On the side of that bulletin is a little tear-off. We call it a Connect card, and uh, if you would just fill that out, uh, we just want to send you a thank you for coming. You can drop that in the offering plate. If you're here this morning and God's working on your heart, you'd like to talk to someone or pray with someone, um, we'll have one of our prayer team members up here. They have purple shirts. That's how they're designated, and they would love to minister to you in prayer. Uh, I'm, th- we're going to do something a little bit different here this morning. I'm going to show you a missions video called Do Something. And this, we're kind of having, having our missions fair this morning. And uh, missions is a big part of what we do at Coastal Community Church. We, Ten cents of every dollar that you donate here goes to our missions area, uh, helps others, okay, goes outside the walls of this church. And so we want you to be a part of donating, but we also want you to be a part of actually serving in some of the missions. And so we want to introduce you. Uh, and, and so you'll, you'll see on the way out, there's a lot of areas that we support, and I want you to be aware of them. There's some people you can talk to. Uh, maybe your small group can find a place of involvement in some of the missions that we support at Coastal. So make this an opportunity. Take 10 minutes on your way out the door. Familiarize yourself with some of the great missions opportunities that you can be a part of and that you support at Coastal Community Church. So this is our video. It's called Do Something. I woke up this morning saw a world full of trouble now I thought how do we ever get so far down and how's it ever gonna turn around so I turned my eyes to heaven I thought God why don't you do something well I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty children sold into slavery the thought disgusted me so I shook my fist at heaven I said God why don't you do something 
talking about how we are God's hands and feet, but it's easier to say than to be. Live like angels of apathy who tell ourselves it's all right, somebody else will do something. As you guys go out this morning, please check out the different missions that you support when you give at Coastal Community Church. And God bless you guys. Have a great afternoon.